This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the way in which you revealed it to us down through the centuries as you, through God the Holy Spirit, oversaw the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, overseeing their writings so that that which they wrote would be free from error and that your oversight of their writing was such that your inspiration extended down to the various forms of the words, the various uh, nuances of each synonym, so that by studying your word, we may come to have an accurate understanding and perception of who you are, who we are, and all that you have provided for us in our salvation and our spiritual life. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we might be mindful that this is your word. This is not uh, the opinion of different human beings. It's not the expression of different individuals' uh, subjective impressions with uh, religious experience, but it is your objective revelation given to us that we might come to know truth and that on the basis of this truth we might come to have uh, knowledge of you and of all that we experience in life and that we may come to glorify you through everything that we think and everything that we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, and we continue our study in Colossians 2, verses 12 through 14. The more I reflect upon this particular passage, and I've done a lot of uh, reflecting upon it over the last two or three years, I believe, and have taught through this these particular verses several times in the past, and I always seem to come up with a few more uh, insights and nuances to this passage, and I believe that this is one of the most important passages in all of the Scripture emphasizing what we have in Christ and all that God has provided for us in terms of the work of Christ on the cross and how this then impacts our individual spiritual life. As we study this section, there are different um, dimensions to what is said here, and the sentence, which is not uncommon for the Apostle Paul, is a rather lengthy one. In the Greek, it begins in, back in verse 11 and continues all the way down through verse 15 as Paul piles up one uh, significant complex thought upon another, which is so typical of the Apostle Paul. But it challenges us to stop and, 
and and really think about what he is saying here and how these different uh, phrases and clauses relate to each other because as <clears throat> that is developed and understood, then we come to a greater understanding and appreciation of just everything that, that God has provided for us. The focus really in this these verses and the ones that follow uh, is on forgiveness. Forgiveness is a key uh, key topic in this, um, this section of Colossians and the implications of it. And just to remind you, so we pick up where we, uh, since it's been a few weeks since we were together and thought through this passage, I want to just uh, sort of read through the section from verse 11 to 15 again. Uh, Paul says, in him, so right away when we read that phrase, we know that he's talking about what we have in Christ. This phrase, in him, is a typically Pauline expression, one that emphasizes what Christians have in Christ by virtue of our relationship with Christ, our position in him, which takes place at the uh, when we're identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection at the instant of our salvation. So we know that what he's talking about here is the possession of Christians after salvation, after our faith in Christ as Savior. He says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ by being buried with him in baptism. This is a reference to the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit uh, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, verses 11 and 12 focus our attention on one aspect that occurs at the instant of salvation, what is referred to as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit when we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And at that instant, the, the, the power of the sin nature in our life is broken. Prior to salvation, we are under the dominion or tyranny of the sin nature. We're fallen. We're spiritually dead. There's only one option, and that is to live like a spiritually dead person. But that is broken at the instant of salvation by virtue of our position in Christ. Now, Paul then goes on to explain the what else goes on at the same time that this event called the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place. It's expressed in verse 13 uh, in the New King James, which is on the screen. It uses a uh, the, the, the word when. It's not really when. It's more of a concessive participle here. It should be translated, though you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh being a reference to the sin nature. He says, he made you alive together with him. That's the main focus is that this act of regeneration when we're made alive again in Christ, when we move from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And so most of what he is talking about in these verses really helps us to understand the dynamic of what we realize in our experience at the instant that we trust in Christ as Savior. He makes us alive with Christ. This is this aspect of regeneration is something that is unique and distinct to the church age. I didn't say regeneration was unique to the church age, 
But this aspect of it, in fact, in in the New Testament, regeneration is so frequently associated with our position in Christ that it was uh, was difficult for uh, both Lewis Berry Chafer and John Nelson Darby to commit themselves to the fact that regeneration occurred in the Old Testament because they saw its close affinity with our position in Christ as regeneration is experienced in the church age, that they were somewhat hesitant to commit to the fact that there was regeneration in the Old Testament. Of course, we must understand that uh, throughout the ages since uh, Adam's original sin, that all human beings are born spiritually dead, separated from God, unable to save themselves, unable to produce any kind of positive righteousness or righteousness that that is uh, acceptable to God's righteousness. And so every human being since Adam's first sin have, um, have needed to be regenerated or born again, to move from spiritual death to spiritual life. And the term that the Bible uses to refer to that is regeneration. But the regeneration that was experienced in the Old Testament by Old Testament saints does not have... Uh, uh, as many things that come with it as we experience in the church age. There's a, a greater association of realities that we have in Christ once that sin penalty was paid for at the cross. So Paul says here, though we were dead in transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. And then we have this next phrase, having forgiven us, all our transgressions. The Greek makes it clear that this is something, this forgiveness occurred prior to the act of being made alive, uh, that that he made us alive together with him uh, in the sense that because, we can translate because we ha- he had already forgiven us of all of our transgressions. And then the next phrase in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, as we look at this particular passage, verses 13 to 15, there's this an emphasis on forgiveness And there is the statement at the end of verse 13 that he makes us alive because he had already graciously canceled all of our sins. That's the idea in the word forgiveness there. Now, when did he do that? The next verse says that he had canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of these decrees against us, and and then skipped down to the end, having nailed it to the cross. And so it is that last phrase, if we look at this outline I put up, or paraphrase of this section, it is that last phrase in verse 13 that tells us when this occurred. Now, this is so important to understand. I understand that a lot of people may think that this is just uh, gets into some uh, minutia in the Greek and in the grammar, and that this uh, may be a little uh, over some people's heads at times, but the implication of this is truly profound. In fact, over the last uh, couple of weeks when I was away in Kiev, 
Uh, Jim Myers and I had a number of uh, conversations related to uh, trying to articulate some of the concepts in this verse. As I had the same conversation conversations with a couple of other pastors in the last couple of weeks as they were asking me uh, some questions related to other aspects of of the work of Christ on the cross, and it would come back to this. And so it's so important to understand this verse. And as I, the more I studied, the more I realized how uh, central this passage is to really understanding, truly understanding the work of Christ on the cross, but above all to help us understand this difficult concept of forgiveness, not just the forgiveness that we have in Christ, but that the understanding that should lead us to being able to truly forgive others in our life in the same way that God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. I pointed out last time that there are two different words in the New Testament that are translated forgiveness. The first is the uh, word group based on the verb afiemi, which means to let go or to cancel, to remit or to leave or forgive. Uh, the noun aphasis is a word that also means to release or to pardon, to cancel. They're words that are used both in relation to sin but also in relation to uh, finances, to cancel a debt, to forgive a debt. And so that concrete example of forgiving a debt is something that helps us understand what it is that we do when we forgive others. And it helps us understand what God did in Christ on the cross in canceling our debt, as the next verse emphasizes. This word group focuses on the act of forgiveness, whereas the second word group, based on the noun for grace and the verb charizomai, emphasizes the attitude that under underlies forgiveness, and that is <clears throat> grace, that this is undeserved favor. It's not something that is earned. It's not something that we merit. We are not forgiven by God because we're such great, wonderful people. We're not forgiven by God because he uh, suddenly realizes how special it would be to have us in heaven. Uh, we are obnoxious to God because we are sinners. We are completely hostile to him, Scripture says. We are born at enmity with him. We are, uh, we are spiritually dead. We are a, a spiritual carcass that has rotted as far as God is concerned because his because of our unrighteousness and the fact that his righteousness cannot have fellowship with our unrighteousness. And so God in Christ forgave us. And the word that's emphasized in and used in Ephesians uh, 4.32 is this word charizomai, emphasizing the graciousness of that act, that we don't deserve it at all. In fact, what we deserve is just the opposite. We deserve condemnation. But instead, God freely forgives us. Now, this idea of forgiveness is also associated, as I pointed out, with redemption, something that is accomplished at the cross. And the word redemption in Scripture emphasizes this idea of the payment of a price. It's a financial term. It describes a transaction. There's actually eight different words that are used in the Scripture to describe the act of redemption. One word group is based on the Greek word 
uh, lutrao, which means to uh, release or to pay a ransom for someone. And then another word group is the word group uh, agorazo, which has the idea of going into the marketplace and purchasing something based on the noun agora, which is the Greek word for the, uh, for the marketplace. But here in Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14, which say almost the identical thing, were stated that in him, that is in Christ, Colossians 1.14 is just mentioned it, so we have a relative there in whom, we have redemption through his blood. The phrase through his blood is in Colossians 1.14 is probably not there. It was probably added uh, by some scribe later on who sought to uh, make it fit more closely to Ephesians 1.7. But the um, manuscripts indicate, the manuscript tradition indicates it should be in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So the phrase forgiveness of sins is an explanatory phrase that helps us to understand uh, redemption. Now the word that is translated redemption here in these passages is the word apolutrosis. You can hear the root uh, noun there, lutrosis, in that in that word. Apa is a preposition in the Greek that is added to it as a prefix to give it a different sense of meaning. And it's really important to understand that this is a significant shift in meaning. The focus on lutrosis or the verb lutrao is on the ransom payment. And the word apa lutrosis actually emphasizes the realization of that payment. And so this is, this is critical for us to understand that when we talk about redemption and when we talk about forgiveness, that the scriptures talk about them in two different senses. One is an objective sense that is directed toward God, and the other is a subjective sense that relates to our personal realization of forgiveness. And I think it's important to grasp that distinction. For some people, that seems to be slicing the bologna a little too thin, but I think it's important for us to understand that because as we deal with people and we are uh, expected to forgive them, then both of these senses apply. There is an objective sense in which we forgive others and there may not be a, a subjective sense or one that is realized in their experience in terms of a change uh, that comes about because of the fact that they are, uh, they are forgiven. You can forgive someone, and it doesn't mean that they come back into your life in the same way that you experienced it before. I pointed out last time that whenever I teach on uh, teach on this concept of forgiving one another. There are always people who have been severely wounded in life by other people who hear much more than you're saying because they're still uh, coming at this from a somewhat uh, wounded position and they think that forgiving someone means uh, eradicating all consequences in their life 
and letting them come back into uh, your life to do whatever damage and wreak whatever havoc they can uh, numerous times. And forgiveness basically means that uh, you give them the power to constantly control your life in some sort of destructive way. And, and that's not true. Let me uh, give you something, some sort of a some simple illustration. Let's say you own a business and you have an employee and you have a certain level of trust with that employee, but then one day you discover that that employee has been uh, stealing money from you. Now, you can objectively forgive that individual and you can have a discussion with them and then you can fire that individual, all of which never violates the principle of forgiveness. They are forgiven objectively from your mental attitude. But there are consequences for their breach of trust, consequences for their theft, and so you are not going to put yourself back into the kind of of a danger or vulnerability to their thievery that was there initially. That does not conflict with forgiveness. Uh, When we look at Scripture, uh, Scripture clearly recognizes these kinds of distinctions in uh, the terminology that is used and in the illustrations that are given. And so uh, the idea that forgiveness means that everything goes back automatically to the way it may have been initially is not part of the meaning of the word uh, to forgive. It simply means to uh, cancel or eradicate that debt. It does not in and of itself have anything to do with uh, necessarily with consequences. And so last time as we went through the passage in Colossians 2, I pointed out that Scripture has four different categories of forgiveness. It is this first one that people have a difficult time articulating and distinguishing from the second category of forgiveness. The first category that I mentioned was a forgiveness that is uh, directed toward God where the justice of God cancels out the debt of sin. It is objective in the sense that it is the work of Christ on the cross that's directed towards the justice of God. In this sense, it is it is similar to what Paul speaks of in Romans 3 as propitiation. That is the work of Christ on the cross that satisfies the righteous and just demands of God, uh, the demands of the Supreme Court of Heaven. Forgiveness overlaps in this sense with propitiation. It is God-directed. The justice of God cancels the debt of sin because of Christ's payment of that for that debt on the cross. This is the idea that we have in Colossians 2, uh, 13 and 14, when it talks about the fact that, that um, because he canceled the legal guilt of our trespasses, that occurs prior to our personal regeneration or, realis- or, or faith in Christ. It's further clarified in verse 14 that this was done when he nailed it to the cross. It happened in A.D. 33. It didn't happen when you or I trusted in Christ as Savior. That sin, that debt, that uh, uh, handwritten certificate against us was nailed to the cross historically. That's when the penalty, that objective, uh, legal, or forensic penalty of sin was paid for on the cross. But that's only one of two aspects of, 
of forgiveness that are spoken of in the scripture. In fact, there are passages that talk about the proclamation of the gospel as proclaiming the gospel of forgiveness. So if people, the question becomes, if people are forgiven when Christ paid the penalty on the cross, in what sense are we giving them the gospel to be forgiven? And that, uh, to understand that is to understand this distinction between the Godward aspect related to the objective payment of the penalty and the personal application or realization of that in the life of the individual. One of the first passages to look at in this is in Acts chapter 13. You might uh, turn with me to that passage so that you can uh, focus on what it says uh, in Acts 13. This is the, con- the context of Acts 13. Is This is Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, the church has been founded in Antioch of Syria. This congregation, primarily Gentile, has expanded and grown, and now they are ready to send out uh, a missionary. So one of the uh, leaders of the Jewish church named Barnabas, whom we've been studying about in Acts chapter uh, 4 and 5, Barnabas is up in Damascus, and as this the church there, I mean up in uh, Antioch, as the church there is growing, uh, he has he realizes that the person they they need for this mission is Paul. Paul's been laboring in obscurity for twelve or thirteen years back in his hometown of Tarsus, and so Barnabas sends a message to him to come to uh, to Antioch. And so they, they are commissioned by the church in Antioch to go out to the Gentiles and they leave on the first journey along with a young man named John Mark. They first went to uh, uh, Cyprus and then later they went to the su- south central area of Turkey and it visited a number of different cities including another Antioch, this one known as Antioch in Pisidia which was a province in the southern south central part of uh, of um, Turkey. And so, on, uh, as was typical of Paul's procedure, when Shabbat came, they would go to synagogue. And after the reading of the uh, Torah in the morning, then they would give uh, anyone in the, any of the men the opportunity to speak. And this would, they, they divided the synagogue between men and women, which I think is not brought, it's brought out in the passage in the Greek, but that the phrase that does it's completely ignored in the, in English translations, it seems. Um, but here, as he, Paul stands up, he begins to give the gospel. He gives a long introduction, goes through the uh, history of God's relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. And then he comes to explaining that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. And when he does that, he comes to this conclusion in verse 38. He says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren. And he doesn't use the term brethren. He uses the phrase male brethren because he's speaking to the men. The women are over here just as observers. That was typical in in the synagogue uh, at that time. So he says, therefore, let it be known to you, male brethren, that through this man is this man has proclaimed to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. 
Now, what's interesting is that the Greek text actually divides, where they divide the verses, actually splits this in a manner that's very different from the English. And the only thing that you have in verse 39 is the phrase, uh, in all this or by all this, uh, or by this, this one, Jesus, all who believe uh, are justified. The rest of the verse really is in verse 38. And I've retranslated it for you to give us a, a little better sense of what this says in the Greek. Therefore, let it be known to you, male brothers, that through this one, that is a reference to Jesus, forgiveness of sin is announced to you, and from all things which you were not able to be declared righteous by the law of Moses, by this one, all who believe are declared righteous." Now, the declaration of righteousness or justification is something that does not occur until we believe in Jesus as Savior. There are basically three things that have to be fixed or repaired in order for us to have eternal life and have a guaranteed destiny in heaven. Most people only think of one, but there's actually three problems that have to be solved. The first problem it has to do with the legal penalty of sin. The legal penalty of sin, which is assessed to the entire human race from the instant that Adam sinned, is the problem of spiritual death, the penalty, legal penalty of spiritual death. Because we are all born in Adam's fall, we are born with the application of that penalty in our reality, we are born spiritually dead. That's what Paul is emphasizing in Colossians 2.12, that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we are born spiritually dead. And then the third problem is that we lack righteousness. Isaiah 64.6 says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So we have three problems. The legal penalty of sin which has to be solved before the uh, bar of God's justice. The second and third problems are things that are part of our experience. We are spiritually dead, and we are unrighteous, and we cannot have eternal life. We cannot come into the presence of God. We cannot spend eternity with him unless we move from spiritual death to spiritual life and unless we are righteous. So those two things have to be uh, be solved as well. Well, the first problem, the problem of paying the legal penalty, is resolved at the cross. Jesus Christ paid that penalty for every single human being on the cross. It is directed, his death on the cross is directed towards God's justice, which is propitiated, Scripture says. He pays the price, that's the, the word group, uh, for redemption, lutrao and agorazo focus on that aspect. And so that payment is made. It is an objective payment directed towards God's justice. But even though that payment is made, and we are on, in that sense forgiven in the sense that the penalty is wiped out, we're still spiritually dead. It doesn't change our experience. It doesn't change our status. We're still spiritually dead. And we are still unrighteous. And it is only when we believe in the gospel, when we trust in Christ as Savior, that God imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ 
and he regenerates us and makes us a new creature in Christ, and we have eternal life. And so these are the two aspects of our salvation, two dimensions in relation to Christ's work on the cross, one in which he pays historically for our sin on the cross, and the other in which that is applied directly to our uh, to our experience. And this is what he is, Paul is announcing. This phrase here, the forgiveness of sin, it's been paid for by Christ on the cross, but they have to hear the message of forgiveness so that they can make that objective payment a reality in their own life. The second passage that we go to where we have the use of this phrase, uh, forgiveness, uh, related to the gospel of forgiveness of sin, and in, or the forgiveness of sin in relation to the gospel is in Acts 26.18. Now, Acts 26.18 comes in a, another context, but the actual speaker that is being quoted is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is speaking, but he is relating what Jesus Christ said to him uh, when he was saved, when Paul was on the road to Damascus. So the context of Acts 26 is when he is giving his apologia or his legal defense before King Agrippa. This was Herod Agrippa II, and he is giving a legal defense. That's what it means to give an answer for the hope that is in you, is to provide an explanation uh, why you are one, one believes what we believe. And beginning in Acts 26.15, Paul gets to the point where he describes his conversion on the road to Damascus. Prior to that, Paul was hostile to Christianity. He was responsible for the arrest and imprisonment and even the death of numerous uh, believers in Christ uh, because of his hostility to Christianity. And when he was on uh, the road to Damascus, he had been given... Uh, authorization by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to go to uh, Damascus and to find any Jews that had become followers of Jesus and to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. So he was indeed very hostile to Christianity. And on the way, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, and it is in that when the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, appeared to him, the Apostle Paul then recognized immediately uh, that he had indeed been wrong and that he had been persecuting uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his followers uh, without cause. And so he fell down before the Lord, and this was when the Apostle Paul uh, trusted in Jesus Christ as his Savior. So he's describing that event to uh, Agrippa, and he expresses it that when Jesus was speaking to him, he described the Apostle Paul's future mission as an apostle, and that that mission was for the purpose of opening the eyes, preaching the gospel in order to open the eyes of the Gentiles with the result that they would turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, with the further result that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So you might read that and say, well, I thought that we had forgiveness of sins because Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross. 
And yes, that's true. That's the objective payment, which is the cancellation of the sin penalty. But it doesn't change the individual status of being spiritually dead or being unrighteous. That comes only when the gospel is understood and believed. So the apostle says that, first of all, his mission was to proclaim the gospel and that the desired result of that was that when people heard it, they would respond in faith and turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. As a result of that turning, and the word repent isn't used here, the word is not met, uh, metanoeo, it's the word apistrepho, which means simply that aspect of turning from going in one direction mentally to going in another direction, to turn from uh, darkness to light, and as a result of that, they would receive forgiveness of sin. This is the application in their experience of the reality of the payment of the of the sin penalty, and so this expresses that uh, positive uh, or the secondary aspect of forgiveness in relation to our our experience. Now, let me try to summarize this for you so that it has a little more, um, maybe a little more of a concrete sense. First of all, in Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14, we have the identical phraseology that, is, that it is in Christ, in him, that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now, both of these passages tell us that there's this, this close relationship or almost identification between redemption and the forgiveness of sins. But the forgiveness of sin that is mentioned here is a forgiveness that is qualified by the, that opening phrase, in him. This is the, really the second category forgiveness that I talked about, the realization in our experience of the fact that we are fully forgiven in Christ. So the in him tells us that this category forgiveness that Paul speaks of in these two verses is related to those that are in Christ, those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. The second thing that reinforces that is this word apolutrosis. Apolutrosis basically means redemption or deliverance or a release, but it <clears throat> is a word that is only used in relation to the personal experience of redemption, not the objective payment of the redemption price. The basic idea in the word redemption is the idea of the payment of a price. That's its core meaning, is to pay a price. Forgiveness also has that idea. It's used in places like Matthew 18.32, where it describes the cancellation of a monetary debt. But when we look with a little more detail into this passage and we realize that this word for redemption here isn't the more objective word group of lutrao or the word group of, of, uh, of agorazo, it, it really makes it very, very clear for us. That word group lutrao, or the noun form lutrosis, refers to the objective uh, payment of a ransom. Jesus used that word in Mark 10.45 when he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That refers to the historical payment of the penalty for sin on the cross. In 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, we have a, an, uh, another word that is used based on lutrao or lutrosis, which is the word anti, uh, anti-lutron, which also has to do with payment of a ransom, but that prefix anti is the is a Greek prefix indicating substitution. It's paying the penalty or the ransom for someone else. And in that verse, uh, the Apostle Paul says related to Jesus that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom, a substitutionary payment, we might say, a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So those two words indicate that objective payment. But the word that we have in Colossians 1.14 and Ephesians 1.7 is a word that should be translated release. It's the application of that. So we have the picture of someone who is a captive or someone who is a slave in the slave market of sin, and the objective payment of that sin releases them from their imprisonment, but they continue to stay there. They remain there as a slave. It is not until they realize that they are free and step away from the slave market that they have the personal experience of redemption. This is the idea in apolutrosis, the actual release of the captive or the slave the realization in our own experience that we are truly forgiven by God. It is the removal of all guilt because we have been uh, redeemed by Jesus Christ. So we have these two aspects of forgiveness. This is similar to the what we learn in Scripture related to reconciliation. Reconciliation is another one of those words that describes what happened, the transaction that occurred on the cross. Reconciled is also a word that has economic implications. Back in the days when we didn't do so much electronic banking and online banking, um, we would reconcile our checkbook at the end of each month when we got that physical bank statement and we would add everything up. I'm so glad I don't do that anymore. I have a, uh, I do everything online, and so I don't have to worry with that since I can't get the same, same uh, uh, answer when I add up a column of numbers twice at the same time. So that was always a, a difficulty for me. Romans 5:10 and 2 Corinthians 5:18 talk about reconciliation in this objective sense. Romans 5.10 talks about the fact that we were enemies to God, and if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. See, that's the historical payment that occurred on the cross, that the human race was reconciled to God historically at the cross. But then he goes on to say that much more having been reconciled, which occurred historically, we shall be saved by his life. That goes on to speak of our future glorification. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul writes, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ 
and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So we have the objective side at the beginning. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, but then as uh, apostles and pastors and ambassadors for Christ for every believer, we have the ministry of reconciliation as we proclaim the gospel, explain the gospel uh, to others. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that is that God was in Christ, that's historical, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trans- trespasses to them, and then the, uh, the, the application of that, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So we see these two aspects. We are forgiven in the sense that the sin penalty is paid for at the cross, but we don't realize that forgiveness unless we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Colossians 1.20 ties this together as well, and by him uh, to reconcile all things to himself by him. See, that's the objective work of reconciliation at the cross. And 2 Corinthians 5.20 states, Now, then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So, it clears up a lot for us as we read the scriptures to see that there is this distinction. The objective payment that occurred in terms of what Christ did on the cross and then its personal, individual realization in our experience when we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, last time I talked about the four categories of forgiveness The first is that this forgiveness that's directed toward God, where the justice of God cancels the debt of sin, and that's for all mankind without distinction. That is what I'm calling a forensic or legal forgiveness. Then we have a forgiveness that is positional in Christ. This is what we have once we trust Christ as Savior. It is ours. It is that realization that we are indeed Uh, free. The the payment has been made and we are fully forgiven in Christ. Then third, we have an experiential forgiveness that occurs every time we confess our sins and God forgives us of our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then that fourth category, which is the tough application, which is relational forgiveness when we forgive one another. And And the way to understand that I think is helped a lot by this distinction between an objective forgiveness where we can forgive someone who has uh, harmed us or hurt us or in some way violated us, and it is objective. We are not going to harbor uh, uh, mental attitude sins of bitterness or anger or resentment toward that person. We forgive them. They are Their problem is now between them and the Lord. It is not a problem we are going to hold Uh, against them. And then there is a subjective realization of that forgiveness in terms of that individual. We may never see that person again. They may never come to any understanding of that uh, restoration of a relationship. That is a different aspect than the objective aspect that is uh, in terms of our own mental attitude of releasing that person, not holding them 
uh, accountable in terms of our own uh, resentment or anger or bitterness, but letting them uh, go and be and committing them to the justice of God to let God handle it and not for us to continue to bring that up again and to continue to let that be a festering uh, sore in our own spiritual life. Forgiveness is foundational not only to understanding what we have in Christ, but in terms of our application of that in every relationship that we have with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect again upon the forgiveness that we have in Christ, that it is multidimensional. There is the forgiveness that we have because the penalty has been paid, that Jesus Christ paid that penalty, the debt was canceled on the cross. But then there's the realization of that in our own day-to-day experience. First and foremost, when we trust in Jesus Christ and that forgiveness becomes ours as we realize that we are completely released from that debt of sin, that we are also made alive together in Christ, and that we are given the perfect righteousness of Christ as the basis for our justification. Father, we pray, too, that as we contemplate this important teaching of Scripture, that it would help us to implement this in terms of our own personal experience of forgiving others, forgiving those who have uh, harmed us in some way, those who have violated our standards or our life, and to release them, to forgive them of those uh, actions and letting you take care of those before the bar of your own justice and making it an issue between them and you and not something that we need to continue to focus on as something that drags us down in our own spiritual life. Father, we thank you for all that we have in Jesus Christ and all that you have given us because it is freely given to us on the basis of simple faith in Christ and not on the basis of anything we do, not not on the basis of any works of righteousness which we do, but according to your mercy completely. And Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.